Why is it so weird to be silent for a minute? It's, be- it's easier to be busy. So it's easier to be busy. It's true. So that may have been awkward for you. Uh, I promise you it was really good for you. Um, that to even still our hearts for 30 seconds to a minute to say, Lord, where have I sinned? Uh, Lord, I know where I have sinned, and I'm pleading your mercy. And then to hear the assurance uh, that God treats you like he treats Jesus uh, because of Jesus. So it's actually a little bit what we're going to talk about today. It's not accidental when the things that Joseph does line up with the things that we're doing. That is very intentional. So before we dive into the sermon and the whiteboard um, and all that, uh, if you were here last week, you know what I'm about to do because I told you we were going to do it every week. Uh, But I need everyone, and I mean everyone, uh, to get out their phones. Get out your cell phones, please. Uh, And up on the screen will be a QR code. uh, And that QR code is going to take you to a brief survey. For a four-week stretch, we are trying to get a read, get a feel, get some data on um, who's here. Uh, How long have you been here? What's your, your, uh, who are you? Um, Kind of coming out of this progressing out of COVID stage that we're in, we're trying to get a feel for um, who's amongst us and who's with us. Um, we are only going to sell part of this data to Meta. Um, <laughs> you get it, culture jokes, you know. Uh, but no, seriously, the only thing we're going to do with this data is, is try to ask the Lord, uh, how would you lead us from here? Uh, who is here? And what would you have us feed uh, to the sheep that are, that are among us. So we did it last week. We're, we're doing it this week. We're going to do it for the next two weeks. So if you're an overachiever, you don't want to miss the next uh, two weeks to get a perfect attendance record. Um, it would be really helpful to know. Even if you're visiting, even if you're just in from out of town and don't, you, you don't plan on being here the next couple weeks, please do this. This would be very helpful for us. Everybody good? Anybody having trouble getting the QR to, to take? Does anybody not know what a QR code is? Does anybody need any help? Okay. A couple more seconds. Just want to make sure everybody got it. Yes, we good? Uh, embarrassing moment, but anybody still working on it? Show of hands. Scott McMillan still looking down, so he's got his... Yeah, playing a game. <laughs> ah, par for the course from the McMillan crew. Um, thank you. Nortons, did you guys want to uh, tell us that you're here? You got how long? Ten seconds, Darren. Get a phone out. No, Evan's, Evan's refusing to do it. He's a pastor's kid. He didn't have to play these games. Yeah. Okay. All righty. Uh, so. Welcome to uh, Midtown 12 South. We have been journeying through the book of Nehemiah. I'm going to give us a brief kind of catch-up, very brief catch-up to where we are. We have a few more weeks in the book of Nehemiah, and then starting the week after Thanksgiving, that Sunday right after Thanksgiving, we'll begin our Advent series. So after today, we only have two more Nehemiah uh, sermons, two more Nehemiah passages. Here's where we are. Here's, here's the lay of the land, and, and then it'll kind of bleed into where we're, where we're headed today. Um, the people of God, this is about 450 years before the coming of Christ, before Christmas. Uh, the people of God have been taken captive in Babylon. They're, they are captive in the Babylonian Empire. That Babylonian Empire 
gets taken over by the Persian Empire. They are now captive in the kingdom of Persia. A group of the Israelites who are in captivity in Persia get granted a release to go back to Jerusalem, all the way across the Middle East, back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild God's city, to begin to rebuild his temple. And so this, it, it, it happens, there's some hiccups. Nehemiah then brings a group of people about 100 years later to finish the work, to rebuild the walls that have been burned to the ground, to revitalize the city. The temple's there, but there's no people, there's no vibrancy, there's no protection for the people to live and dwell in Jerusalem. So this is a restart to God's people. They hope that they've been in captivity. God, would you show us mercy again? Would you let us be your people again? Would you uh, let us show the world who you are and we will be those kinds of people. They get back to Jerusalem, they finish the wall, and then they have this kind of... Uh, month-long dedication month of ceremonial things to try to reboot the people of God in Jerusalem once again. So we've looked at that the last couple of weeks. Uh, They come and they read the law of God, the Torah, for half a day, and they begin weeping. And then Nehemiah comes and lifts their faces and says, don't weep for the joy of the Lord will be your protection. He will not, he is going to show you mercy. They have a party for three weeks. And then last week we looked at the response to that. When they come out of that party, that celebration of three weeks, then they spend a day all together doing what we just did before I got up here confessing their sin to the Lord. That's what we looked at last week. What is this practice of confession and repentance for the people of God? So we looked at that. Today is, it literally bleeds right out of last week's ending, if you were here, and now they're going to they're gonna take a, another kind of step in the direction of, we, wanna, we want to try to be the people of God in this city, in this new era of God's people. Uh, again, this is 450 years before the coming of Christ. So uh, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles, uh, or it'll be on the screen We're actually going to read the last verse of Nehemiah chapter 9, which is what we looked at last week. And then we're going to skip a bunch of names that we'll talk about. And we're going to read the end of Nehemiah chapter 10, about 10 or 12 verses. So last verse of Nehemiah chapter 8, chapter 9, 9, 38. And then we're going to start with chapter 10, verse 28. So, we up there, Darren, we good? Yeah? Oh, no, he says no. Oh, yeah. Hey, why would you give that? You're doing, thank you. Um... Because all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed documents are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then if you're looking in your Bible, you'll see the beginning of chapter 10 is just a whole bunch of names. Those are the names of the people, the leaders of the people that signed the covenant. And here's what it said. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, Join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his rules and his statutes. We will not give our daughters to the people of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy for them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests and the Levites and the people 
have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God to the priest who minister in the house of our God the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle as it is written in the law and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground, for it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes, and the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes, the tithe of the tithes of the tithes of the tithes, to the house of our God, to the chambers of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, I know there's a lot there. It's, it's like kind of even hard to follow or like what, what is happening. There's a lot, if you caught it, a lot of promises being made. This is what we are going to do. This is what we will do now, Lord, as we inhabit this city. But the reason why we started the reading today, if you caught it at the end of chapter 9, 938 says, because of all this, because of the confession that we just made in chapter 9 and the mercy we are shown, we make a firm covenant in writing. Okay, that term, covenant, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. Okay, this is the theme of the day. What in the world is a covenant? And why are they using that language? Can we see in the back? Kyle Snyder, can you, can you read that? Okay, here we go. That would have been bad if Kyle couldn't read in general and I just asked that in public. There we go. So what is a covenant? You hear this term and we go, that would, you know, okay, that sounds like a Bible word. There's some, maybe some loose associations with it that you have. But what is a covenant? Covenants happened all the time in the ancient world. It was very, very common. And typically how it worked was this. Well, you had this grand king known as a suzerain king. That word suzerain is like Caesar or Caesar. It means the same thing. The emperor, a, a greater, more powerful king, would come and he would take over the land of a lesser king known as a vassal. And so this is like a greater king and that kingdom comes into the land and he wins the battle. And now he has the opportunity with this lesser king to say, hey, do you wanna stay alive? Do you want to be um, wiped off the face of the earth or do you want to stay living? And I'll even give you some power to oversee that section of my kingdom. But we are going to be in relationship, lesser king, and here's how you're going to stay in relationship with me. We are going to have, at, to hold this relationship together, the thing that this relationship will be built on are some laws that I will give you to follow. And that is known as covenant law. The covenant law were these stipulations. Here are the rules that you have to live by. If you want to live in this area of my kingdom and even have some power in my kingdom, you will obey these laws. And so every covenant had laws, had stipulations. And that law was what held the covenant together. If that law gets broken, then the, the vassal king, the lesser king, had to face covenant curses. And those curses were bad. Those curses were, were like committing treason against the high king. And so there was punishment to be had. There was, there was debt to pay, maybe a, an exacting a payment from the vassal king. And then if, if the king felt like it or if the king wanted to, he could punish the vassal king by death. 
You have committed treason. You have broken the covenant law and the stipulations. The thing that was supposed to hold our relationship together, you broke, so now you get covenant curses. If you obey the law, though, if you follow the stipulations that we have laid out, you will get covenant blessings. That's sloppy, but it says the word blessings. And here's what some of the blessings were. You would be in right relationship with the, the, the suzerain king. You would, get, um, you would get protection from this king. You would also get all the rights of the kingdom, meaning you got all the blessings of living in this suzerain king's kingdom. You got his protection. You got his resources. You got his armies. You got all the, all the rights of what people in that kingdom deserve. You got in your little section of the kingdom if you obeyed the covenant law. So all covenants had blessings and curses that came with it, and they were all based on this law that they were meant to keep. Okay, so that's what is a covenant. That's an ancient reality. That is not something the Bible made up. Covenants existed like this all over the ancient world in the ancient Near East. Israel has been in a covenant relationship since the day of their inception. The covenant that begins the the relationship between God and Israel starts with Abraham. The Abrahamic covenant is in Genesis chapter 12. They have been in a covenant relationship. With that covenant comes a law that is known as the covenant law of Israel. And what the people of God are experiencing right now in Nehemiah chapter 10 is they have come back to their homeland. We are in Nehemiah 10. They have come back here. And what you just heard in Nehemiah chapter 10 was a covenant renewal ceremony. Because guess what reality they've been living in as a people? They've been living in the covenant curses area. That's why they were taken into captivity to begin with. And so they're coming back to the Lord and they're saying, we want to renew this covenant. You see the covenant language? If you caught it, uh, verse 29 says, they joined with their brothers, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath. They entered into, they re-entered into a curse and an oath. And what they say? To walk in the, in God's law that was given to them by Moses. So the law that God gives to Moses in Mount Sinai was a covenant law that had stipulations. It had blessings and curses. And the people of God that have have been in captivity, they've been living under the weight of the covenant curse. So they come back to God in Zion and they say, we want to renew this covenant. It's amazing that we're not dead. It's amazing you didn't just totally wipe us out when we were in Persia. We've come back now to Jerusalem. You've shown us mercy to even let us come back home. And now we want to renew this covenant. And they're saying that we want to obey the law that you gave us. That is how we are going to renew the covenant. And what they want is, what do they want? They want the blessings of living in God's kingdom. God being, Yahweh being, I'll write the four letter Yahweh. Yahweh being the suzerain and Israel being the vassal. Israel. Israel being the vassal. They're saying we want this relationship back intact. How does a covenant relationship get put back intact and held intact? By obeying the law. So we want to renew our covenant with you. And that's what we just read. We are renewing our oath with you. We are entering back into the relationship and saying we are going to now obey the law so that we can get the right relationship back, so that we can have protection and have what it means to be in your kingdom, have all the rights that belong to us. So some of this is not bad. Some of this is really good. They're saying after they've repented over all their sins, that's what we looked at last week after they've confessed all of it, they're saying, Lord, 
We want to do right by you. We want to obey the law. You've shown us mercy that you didn't even wipe us out when you could have. We deserve death because of the treason that we committed against you and all our ancestors. We want to renew our vows with you. We want to renew our covenant with you. But if we dig a little deeper, just a little bit, and, and, I, and I wouldn't expect it like that when you heard it read or saw it read on the screen that you were like picking up on this, that if you study this, if you read through Nehemiah chapter 10 and their, their vows that they make in this, and you heard it, they, they say in there, Lord, we want to follow all the laws that you gave to our, our ancestor Moses and that was a covenant law. But then they get really specific. They start naming these areas in the law that they're going to do really good at. They actually name six areas. Areas like we're going to really observe the Sabbath. Areas like we're really going to tithe when we're supposed to. Areas like we're going to give the first fruits away, which you command us to. We're going to, we're going to take care of the temple. We're going to provide all the right wood for all the right offerings. They get really specific in six areas. So they've said we want to follow the whole law to restore the relationship that the law holds together. But Lord, let us, let us also tell you what we're really going to do. We want to get really specific. Now, these specific areas were probably, most likely, areas that they knew they had really failed in before. They're saying, hey, we and our ancestors have really failed to keep the Sabbath, and we're really going to do that this time. And we've really failed to do the, the sabbatical year every seven years, and we're really going to do it this time. And we failed to give away our first fruits, and that, and that, that, that is breaking the law, and we're really going to do it this time. But here's where, here's where it gets tricky, is that these six areas that they name with very specific language— we're going to really do great in this area. They end up adding details to those areas that weren't in the original law. They end up saying, we're not just going to obey the law. We're going to really obey it in these six areas, and we're going to go over the top. We'll even add some of our own law. We'll even like prove to you that we deserve to be back in this right relationship by like getting some extra credit in these areas. We don't just want to get 100, we want to get 110, and everybody hates those students, right? Like, we, we want to do all the extra credit. We're going to name for you all the ways we're really going to obey in these areas. And so if we see this, this is, this is where it gets interesting. Here they not only promise that they will obey the law, but here are the areas, the, the bulk of what we just read are areas where they're going to add to the perfection on their own as they see it. And so what's interesting about this is that adding to this law, what they've done in these six areas, is not really an act of beautiful submission. Because they're deciding what they think is the best way to add to this law. What we just saw from them was actually a display of their autonomy. We, we will tell you, Lord the areas that we think we really need to be extra perfect in, and we will decide what those details are. We will add to the law where we want to add to the law. What's interesting about that word autonomy, if you break it down in like its Latin roots, autonomos means self-law. It's exactly what they're doing. But on some levels here, there are additions to the law was not a re-entering of the covenant with the Lord. Their adding to the law was actually a re-entering of a covenant with themselves. So think about this. Who gets to determine the details of the law that keeps the relationship intact? The suzerain does, the king does, the greater king does. But whenever autonomy enters the picture, whenever people say, I'm gonna do what I wanna do, who are they entering into a covenant with? Themselves. They're saying, 
actually to decide on what's best, to decide on the law that I'm going to obey, and I want to decide on it, I'm actually going to be suzerain and vassal. I'm actually going to be God and servant. I'm actually going to do both positions. This has actually been Israel's issue since the very beginning. It's actually been, if you want to go even more meta, it's actually been humanity's problem since the very beginning. That autonomy is actually what got Adam and Eve in trouble in the garden. God, you gave us a law to follow. We don't like that law. I don't understand that law. It doesn't make sense to me. It's not woke enough. It's not culturally relevant enough. We're just going to do what we want to do. And so God's people have always had this issue. Genesis 3, autonomy. Here's another. You want to read a whole book on autonomy? Go read the book of Judges. Here's the, here's the repeated phrase all throughout the book of Judges. Do you know what the author of the book of Judges says? Almost in every chapter. It's like 12 times in the book. It says, and in those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. In those days Israel had no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. They had autonomos, self-law. I'll just do what I want to do. I don't really have to think about um, what laws you would command me to do if I, if I feel guilty enough or if I want to secure the relationship enough or if I want to feel good about myself enough. I'll just decide what I want to do. I'll be the lawgiver for myself. We have decided what we need. We've decided what's best for us. We've decided what laws to follow that will give us the life that we want. And it's really easy to read Israel, read their story, starting back in Genesis 3 even with Adam and Eve, to read, to read their story and go, so stupid. Why, why would they choose autonomy over and over again? Why would they think that they can decide for themselves what's best over and over again? It's because it's what we do too. We re-enter into covenants with ourselves. We play both roles. We'll be the suzerain and the vassal. I'll determine the law that best guides me. I'll determine the stipulations and what, me, what it means for my life when I get to obey the laws that I decide are best for me. The autonomous person is the person that creates their own value system and establishes their own norms and is answerable and accountable to self and to self alone. What's so subtle about that, though, and, and, and this is us, what's so subtle about this is that this phrasing, it actually has become such a, such a, a cultural demand that everyone be autonomous, that it's now been equated with this cultural credo that says, if you're not practicing autonomy for you, if you have not decided what is the best law for you to follow, if you're not coming up with the areas for you that are best for you, then you're still so blind you, you, you actually don't, you, you are not free until you practice this. It's what, it's what we all believe on some level, micro and macro areas of our life. I will decide what I want to do with my parenting. I will decide on how I'm going to talk to my spouse. I will decide on what I want to look at on the internet. I will decide on what, what to do with my life in the social setting. I will decide on what is best for me politically. I will decide on all this. And if you're not practicing that, then you are still being oppressed by the system that raised you, and you haven't found real freedom until you get here. We believe that, all of us. And if you're going, no, I don't really believe that, then you have no idea how much you believe that. 
Because you can't breathe Nashville oxygen and not believe that. That is, we have all been inculcated to believe that autonomy is what's best for us. Live by what laws you come up with and you'll be free. Perhaps this is no more, nowhere more beautifully displayed than by the renowned uh, princess herself, Elsa, from Frozen, which I love. This is, this is not like a, this is not in any way like, don't watch Pixar. It's actually an incredible movie. And I actually think, if you really want to push me on it, I think she learns, I actually think like she has a turn by the end. I think that she would not declare autonomy as much as she does at the beginning. But listen, listen to this. Listen to the, the, the shining moment to her, her, her glorious number one hit. She says, it's time to see what I can do to test the limits and break through. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. No right, no wrong, no rules for me, I'm free. Which means, here's what that means. If you're going to say, I don't, I don't want to obey anybody's laws but my own. No right, no rules, no, 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 uh, no tripping for me. Uh, then, then, then here's what you're saying. You're actually saying the only person I have to answer to is myself. And guess what they believe, what she believes, what we all believe will happen. She says it at the end. What will happen when we finally land in the no right, no wrong, no rules for me living? I'll be free. What's ironic about it is, and this, this, is, this takes like so much humility to admit this or to even have eyes to see this. What's ironic about it is that autonomy is not freedom. I know it sounds like freedom. I know when I ask my kids, hey, you can, eat, you can go pick out anything you want to go eat in the pantry, you can have any of it. That feels like freedom. What's, what's um, Blinding about that is that it's actually not uh, freeing, it's not liberating to live autonomously, it's actually enslaving. Because when my kids walk into the cabinet to eat what they want to eat, they are only being driven by what they want in that moment. And they're gonna pick candy every time. And so it feels like freedom, it sounds like freedom, it's actually putting shackles on. Because guess what you're bowing down to? You're bowing down to yourself, and so that means the thing that you are going to obey when you want to obey is whatever you want in that given moment. And you're a slave to your flesh, and you're a slave to your desires. And it takes an incredible amount of arrogance to think that I can live autonomously, and I can decide what's right for me, and to believe that you're fit for that role. To believe that you've got it under wraps enough to go, yeah, I think I should be the one to decide what's best for me in any given moment. When you rule you, you are not free. We, what we actually see is slavery by autonomy. That's, that's what autonomy creates, is slavery. Go read Romans 6. Autonomy is not freedom. You're enslaved to a much greater power the power of what you define as freedom in any given moment. And you're a slave to it. So how'd they do? How did the Israelites do when they decided, we're gonna decide what laws we wanna follow in this, in this season, and we're gonna really, really do what we decide to do. And just like the book of Judges, we're gonna decide what's right for us. And in this season, it feels like it's really holy things. It feels like, Lord, we wanna obey you on the Sabbath and the first fruits and go over and above on all the ways that we've decided is the best way to obey you. How'd they do? This is Nehemiah chapter 10. 
We're going to be in Nehemiah 13 in, in just a couple weeks, the end of the story. It's the last chapter in the book. And here's, and I'm not going to, uh, we're not going to cover all of Nehemiah 13, but it's very pertinent to Nehemiah 10. Many scholars think that Nehemiah 10 and Nehemiah 13 are like mirror images of each other. Because here's what Nehemiah the author does in Nehemiah 13. He goes back over all six areas. Nehemiah is getting a lay of the land. How are the people doing now that the wall is completed? We're going to get to this in a couple weeks. Well, how's this story going to finish? And the litmus test for how they want, how Nehemiah wants to judge based, uh, how are the people doing in this new city, in this new time is, let's just see how they are doing in the areas that they decided were best for them. Well, let's just take the six areas. And he takes the exact six areas from Nehemiah chapter 10, Nehemiah 13, he runs through them. How do you think they did? All of them. They can't even keep their own law. The ones that they made up as best. And Nehemiah is running down the gauntlet of going, you didn't do any of this. Famous thinker of the last generation or so, Francis Schaeffer, gives this illustration. And he says, okay, throw out the law of God. You don't believe in a higher power. You don't believe in the God of the Bible. Great, that's fine. Throw out the law, the covenant law of Yahweh to guide your life. Let's just go with what you think is best for you. And how about this deal, okay? That for the rest of your life, you wear a tape recorder or your iPhone tape recorder app is running, okay? That you have a tape recorder around your neck for the rest of your life. And the only time, the only time it records anything is when you give a law that other people or yourself should follow. This is how you think people should act. This is how you think people should behave. This is what you think is right and wrong. And that tape recorder only captures your own law, what you see is best. We're gonna take that tape recorder and at the end of your life on judgment day, you're not gonna face Yahweh and how, how you kept his law. All you gotta do is live up to your own law. We'll just play the tape recorder back for you. How do you think you do? We can't even keep our own law. We, we can't even do right with the stuff that we think is right. But even their failure to, to, to keep their own law would not stop them from being a, a people that would continue in their autonomous ways. The human condition that demands to have its autonomy will not be thwarted by a few failed attempts, will it? Like, yeah, so we messed up. Nehemiah 13, three chapters later, we're, we're not doing any of the things we promised to do. But just because we failed to do it doesn't mean I'm just going to give up my autonomy. Failure will not free me from my enslavement to my autonomy. Autonomy continues to add its own law to the picture. And if you follow Israel's history for the next 400 years, here's what you actually see. You actually see a group of people that end up being known as the Pharisees, um, the, the experts in the law between this time and the, and, and the end of the Old Testament, between this time and the coming of Jesus, they end up adding thousands of laws to the law of God. They don't just have six areas. They end up adding thousands of areas to the law of God. Thousands of autonomous ways to be the guide on what is best and how to add to the perfection. Thousands of ways to try to control the system. Thousands of ways to try to secure the life that they want. Thousands of laws added by their own doing to try and be free. Because we're still so convinced that autonomy equals freedom. 
And for 450 years, this is when the Pharisees rise to power and they are oppressing the people with their own autonomous decisions on what is best for them. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus has an answer to the autonomous issue that's in us. And Jesus' answer to autonomy in us is not antinomianism. It's not anti-namas. It's not anti-law. Jesus' answer to autonomy is not, well, don't worry about any laws. You're free. In fact, Jesus shows up and he doesn't say one thing about throwing out the law. He actually says the complete opposite. Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. He says, I came to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle. I came to cross every T and dot every I in the law, the perfect law. Meaning Jesus is saying, I'm going to love perfectly. I'm going to serve perfectly. I'm going to live perfectly. What happens when you live perfectly in the covenant law of God? What do you get with no mess ups? You get all the blessings of the covenant. You get right relationship with the king. You get protection from the king. You get all the rights of belonging to the kingdom with no trouble. Jesus earned every last blessing of the covenant because he kept the law perfectly. And Jesus didn't fulfill the law's demands to simply show us that it could be done if we tried hard enough. Jesus kept the perfect law, get this, Jesus kept the perfect law so that us in 2021, Jesus kept the perfect law so that through him, we would have a secure place in the kingdom. Jesus kept the law so that all the blessings of the covenant would fall on you. He kept the perfect law so that he could give you the riches of what he earned. Jesus was a better version of Israel. Jesus did what Israel couldn't do. Jesus kept the law in all the places where Israel failed. But then it gets better. Galatians chapter 3 comes along. Galatians 4 hints at this too. But Galatians chapter 3 comes along and says that Jesus Christ, not only did he keep the law perfectly so that you could have through him all the rights and privileges of being a perfect law keeper, Jesus, Galatians chapter 3 says, Jesus actually became a curse for you. Jesus was punished like he was a lawbreaker. Jesus had debt to pay as if he had broken the law. And ultimately, he paid the death of a treason. But he was a perfect law keeper, so how in the world did he also become a curse? And this is what theologians call it. It's what we read about. It's what we confessed, we believed. This great exchange that happens because of the person and work of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you get treated like you kept the law perfectly, and Jesus got treated like he broke every last jot and tittle of the law. There's no more curses for those that belong to Jesus. Because your covenant representative has earned all the blessings for you and taken all the curses for you, now means this. Think about this, because we're still in a covenant relationship with the Lord. We're still in a covenant relationship with Yahweh, the high king of heaven. But here's what it means. It means that the, the security of the relationship, the thing that keeps the relationship intact, has already been completed. It means that the integrity of the relationship has nothing to do with your integrity. 
It has everything to do with Jesus' integrity to keep the law perfectly and to not actually be autonomous and say, I'm just going to do what I want to do. I'm going to obey the law of God in a perfect way, and then I'm going to give that standing as a right law keeper. I'm going to give that standing to my people. So this relationship is now forever intact, which means this. We now have a new relationship with the law. We now actually get to enter our relationship with the law, not as slaves trying to keep a relationship intact. We actually enter a relationship with the law where we are free. You're free. Because nothing you could do could ever create a situation where God's going to treat you like a covenant breaker. You're free. You will now be treated only and always like a covenant keeper because of Jesus. Which means, guess what you're free to do? I know this sounds crazy. You're free to obey the law. Because you're a son, you're a daughter. You have all the rights and privileges of someone who belongs to the kingdom because of Jesus. So now you're free not to create your own law. You're free. You get freedom by submission. You get free. You get free by submitting to his law. Because there's no more curse for you. So now we interact with the law in a totally new way. But in order to do that, I would have to first admit that I am unfit to determine the law that is best for me. I would have to admit to you and to the Lord, I'm not a good autonomous person. I am unfit for the role of king of my life. Because we've seen, autonomy is actually slavery. It's not freedom. There's a freedom that comes from being guided by the one that made you. He made your nature. He made your desires. And submitting yourself to his law is actually an invitation to live in the way that you were made to live. And so the New Testament over here for us, like we're, we're in the new covenant. There's the old covenant and the new covenant. That's what the word testament means, old covenant, new covenant. Now they're very related. There's one timeline. This is not a covenant theology class, but here we go. The, the, here's, here's what the New Testament actually calls the law of the covenant. You know what it calls it? The law of liberty. It's actually a law that can set you free because it's not your law. And you don't know how to set yourself free. But the law of liberty does. The law of liberty can actually set you free. Christianity, as James K. Smith notes, sees a very different understanding of what is good. It sees that humanity and all of creation flourish when they are rightly ordered by a law that is not of their own choosing but rather a law that is ordered by God himself. The law of God, James K. Smith says, the law of God is a displacement of our own desire for autonomy. See, you needed a king that would kick you off of your own throne. And this king left his to do it. And this perfect perfect covenant-keeping Jesus has now set you free from the law of sin and death. He has kept the covenant. The law has been fulfilled and accomplished. So now you're free. Free to submit, free to obey, and free to give up your autonomy. Let's pray. Jesus, um, we're not just bad law makers, we're bad law keepers ultimate law that would create societies and cultures of joy and freedom, 
flourishing. It would eradicate poverty and injustice. We need a law that can create a people like that. We think we know the way and we, we have a great history ourselves and as being a part of your people, we have a great history of failing at lawmaking and law keeping. And so Jesus, the perfect law keeper, who took the curses that he might give us the blessings, we come to you now and ask that you loosen our death grip on our autonomy. Would you give us this, the strength and the courage to admit not just where we failed, but the places where we have we are set ourselves up as kings and as lawgivers of our life. Save us from ourselves, Jesus. We need it more than anything. We ask all this in your name. Amen. So we are now um, going to come to the communion table, and actually the communion table is going to come to you. I'll make this brief because we're, we're going to pass the elements to you, and there are these little communion kits, a uh, little piece of bread on top and a, and a little juice cup beneath. And you're going you're gonna to get the elements, and it's going to pass in front of you, and you're going you're gonna to think, uh, you're going to be tempted to think, um, this, is, this is just what you do when you're at church. We do it the first Sunday of the month here. This is just a church thing. And especially in these little plastic kits, you're going to be able to easily dismiss it as just a religious practice that has no power. We believe something very differently, and this is not me trying to hype you up. I'm just telling you what the Bible says about this practice. The Bible says about this practice that it is sacred. That's why we call it a sacrament. What that word means when we call something a sacrament, when we call it sacred, when we, that Latin root, sacra, actually means mysterious and powerful. What you're about to do is, is no mere practice of religiosity. What you're about to do is do something, participate in something, that is so mysterious, it has the power to change you. When it gets inside of you, it actually has the power. You're, you're about to eat and drink grace. And you may not leave here on some emotional high. You may not leave here feeling like, I just participated in something so sacred. But just because you don't feel it or sense it doesn't take away from what the Bible says about this practice. Do not be your own lawgiver. Do not be autonomous in your view of what we're about to do. But because it's so mysterious, because it's so powerful, it's like uh, the electrical fence you know, that's protecting like the electrical um, like warehouse of a city. Like there is fencing around that powerful place because the fencing around it gives you a warning. Saying, hey, you can go in here, but you need to know the power, the voltage that's behind this fence. And so all that the warnings of scripture do is they give a fence to say, hey, do not take this lightly. There, there is meant to be a sobriety. There is meant to be a, a, a humbling to go, what I'm about to participate with is dangerous. It is so powerful. And so here are the two warnings in Scripture. The first warning is to those in the room that have never professed faith in Jesus Christ. They've never admitted their own autonomous tendencies and that you have forever since your inception been someone who has demanded to uh, create and keep your own law and you don't want anyone else's law. You don't think the law of God even matters for you. you don't, you're not quite sure that you want to believe in a Jesus that would keep the law for you. If that's you, if you've never repented to Jesus in the room, if you've never uh, run to him for your salvation, then, then we would just say, hey, what you're about to be offered to do is only for people who are in the new covenant. That's what Jesus says about this meal at the Last Supper. He says, this is the, this is the blood of the new covenant. There's a new covenant now. 
If you're not in the new covenant, we would ask that you not participate in these elements. If you're here, though, and you've got questions about Jesus, questions about the church, hang-ups, hurts, all of it, we welcome you and we would love to talk to you about it. We would just ask that you let the elements pass in front of you. The second um, warning in Scripture on the fence before you go in is the warning for those of us that are uh, over here. We are in the new covenant. We, we've been given the covenant blessings by our covenant curse taker, Jesus. Uh, but for whatever reason, we've got an autonomous area in our life, not that um, we're unaware of, but one that we're unwilling to give up. One that we look at Jesus and we say, I know what your law says to me here, but I'm choosing to stay over here and to be my own king. If you've got areas in your life where you know it is wrong, and yet you still willfully tell Jesus, I don't care what you say, it, it would be a dangerous thing for you to partake of these elements. Actually, the book of 1 Corinthians says you eat and drink judgment on yourself if you do that. Now, I'm not trying to say like, have any of you sinned this week? Don't you come to this table if you, no. It's, it's, it's willful knowing refusal to repent where Jesus has called you to repentance. If you're over here and you struggle with the submission, if you're over here and you still believe that stuff that you could do could earn you a covenant curse because Jesus hasn't quite taken all the curses for you, or if you're over here and you're not quite sure that Jesus has secured all the blessings for you, that's great. You come and eat this meal. You come and feast on his body and his blood. You come and feast on these elements because this is what these elements are meant to do to you. These elements are meant for you to taste what Jesus paid to secure the covenant blessings for you. These elements are meant to show you what he went through in order to earn for you what he's earned for you. And it will help you believe it more as you digest these elements and repent to him and give up your autonomy before him. I'm gonna read you one final quote that I came across two years ago when I was reading Lord of the Rings. I just said, I'm gonna use that on a communion Sunday and I'm tired of saving it. So we're doing it today, okay? But it actually fits. Because we, we need to eat these elements um, to be reminded of what Jesus accomplished for us. But as we eat these elements, it also sustains the weary Christian. It sustains us. It changes us and causes us to be people who are more willing to submit to find our freedom. It, it has that ability. And so there's this, if you haven't read Lord of the Rings, there's this, um, there's this bread, this magical elven bread called Limbus bread. And the, the fellowship, uh, Sam and Fredo have it with them on their journey uh, to Mordor. And that's all they have for food near the end. It's like all they, all they have. And they're starving and they're tired and they're exhausted. And all they can eat is this Limbus bread. And somehow this Limbus bread makes them full, like little, little bits of it, like as small as the size of the, the, the uh, crouton that you're going to eat this morning is in here. Like it's just little bits of it. It sustains them. But it does more than just give them energy to keep walking. Listen to what Tolkien says about this Limbus bread. As you need strength to believe that there's freedom by submission. As you wage war with your own autonomy to believe that, that this is good for you. Listen to what it says. It says, the Limbus bread had a virtue without which they would long ago have laid down to die. The Limbus bread did not satisfy desire and at times, Sam's mind was filled with the memories of food and the longing for simple bread and meats. And yet, this way bread of the elves had a power that increased as travelers relied upon it alone. 
and they did not mingle it with other foods. Here's what it says about it. It fed their will, and it gave them strength to endure beyond the measure of mortal kind. Here's what it's saying. When you partake of these elements, it's actually gonna give you a power. When you don't mix these elements with any of your own effort, when you don't mix these elements with any of your own promises, when you don't mix these elements with any of your own autonomy, it has the power to sustain and change your will and to carry you and to feed on Jesus and him alone to make you one who would give up your autonomy.